thing to launch into. Okay, I have negative two minutes. How many of you have a backyard? Most folks don't, right, in Providence? <laughs> I realized that. I was going to ask this question. Most people are like, kind of? There's the cement patch. <laughs> How many of you who do not live in the city or, or I don't know, on the east side? Um, <laughs> Uh, how many of you have green space? How many of you have woods behind your house? Oh, it's getting smaller. How many of you have woods that like, are more than just like four trees? Okay. How many of you, when you were growing up, had woods to explore in or fields to explore in? Yeah, a lot of you. Suburban sprawl. Um, I, had like a, I had like a sandlot childhood. Yeah, it, I, I count myself really blessed. Like all the neighbors' lawns, we were all pretty much connected. There was like a few bushes that connect that, that you know, stood as boundary markers. So it made for great baseball fields. It made for great soccer fields. I knew all the, na- all the neighbors' kids. We all like hung out together and played. Um, way before Chippendale Rescue Rangers. I don't remember Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Yeah. Ch-ch-ch-chippendale. Okay, wow, that was awesome. Doxology, we're out of here. So good. So we had this, uh, this sort of like, um, I don't even know, it was like a club, a force called the Rescue Rangers. Grew up in West Kingston, West Kingston Rescue Rangers. It was like a thing. Me and my buddy Ricky, I was captain, he was commander. I was the oldest kid, so it worked out. We had this one kid down the street that we didn't really like. He was kind of a jerk. That He was like the enemy. Not good. But most of our time really wasn't meant fighting Zach. It was, it was just making like, we'd make all sorts of great trails. Um, uh, we have all had our individual forts. And I, I try to remember back, like, what did we do in these forts? And I, I don't remember. I remember we just, like, cleaned them up a lot and, like, organized them and hung out in them and, like, did stuff. And it was sort of this weird blurry line between reality and fantasy where we were, like, rescue rangers, like, actually on mission in the neighborhood to, like, serve and bless and protect and explore new things. And then also, you know, like, alien monsters would appear in our imagination at times and the whole thing would, like, detour into all-out, you know, war um, or we just play base. So there's like a rescue rangers baseball league. Uh, it was confusing. This makes no sense. But I had a lot of woods behind my house. It's a really rural area. A lot of farms around us. So there's one big field. And I remember the first time that we ventured like beyond the field into the we called it the backwoods. Super creative. You know, kids have great creative names. Like my two and a half year old daughter calls baby baby bunny bunny kitty kitty. Yeah, it was like the woods and then the backwoods. So we went to the backwoods. And uh, I remember the first time we came upon a stream. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Some of you have no idea, and that's okay, because that's a weird thing. We came, we're like, you know, just imagine these little kids, we're going through the woods, and we came upon like, and not just like a swampy stream. We had seen those. This was like a gushing stream that was in the middle of the woods. First question we asked. Are there any fish in there? Oh, 
we saw a fish. Oh my gosh. So we would take fishing poles and go back into the woods. I'm pretty sure no one actually saw the fish because I never caught a fish. I never saw one since my buddy Ricky Squares, he saw one. But it was like incredible. We'd set up little forts, like like, like little, we, we, I remember we stretched, we tried to make bridges across the stream. Granted you, the stream was probably like from here to the end of the stage. But it was incredible. It was like every bit of time we could spend. Then we heard a rumor after, or it wasn't really a rumor, it was just sort of history in, uh, in class that uh, we live near the Great Swamp, which is one of the more epic battles in U.S. history. Um, and we heard that there were a lot of folks that used to find arrowheads around Great Swamp. And we're only like four miles from the Great Swamp. So, of course, what do we start looking for? Yeah, any rock that was slightly triangular. <laughs> and then as the oldest, how many of you are oldest? You were oldest in your friend group? How many of you know how bad you manipulated like your friends? Right? Like you just like, in the moment it felt like somehow noble. Like, no, this is an arrowhead. I'm just, you know, helping them. I like... Oh, I found so many arrowheads. Andrew was the arrowhead king. He found all the arrowheads. It was just like slightly triangular rocks because none of them had ever looked up what an arrowhead was. But I tell you, those moments in that time in that literal location was so sacred. We would just, any chance we got to go back there and to be there and to play and to hang out and make up games and just like literally sit by the stream, carving your names into the tree. I mean, it was just like everything. These woods were so sacred. I think I told the story once of my sister had a guinea pig that died that was really traumatic when she was a child. My mom fried it, long story. <clears throat> yeah, dark. No, I was kidding. It wasn't very accidental. Popped into the frying pan. No, I was kidding. Um, guinea pig died and we buried it. And then years later, my little sister has this epiphany. She's like, Cody is in the backyard, in the backwoods. So she gets her friend Lauren and Kristen next door and they go on an adventure and they, they go to try to dig up Cody. They weren't like college or anything. It was just like they were really little. Oh, and then when they finally did, it was gross. But then they realized like, wait, Andrew told us that he buried his hermit crabs out there too. Jason and Justin, those are my hermit crab names. So they started to build up hermit crabs and it was like treasure. The woods in the back with the stream with the arrowheads, this find for my sister, the dead animals. This is a very real example. It was like everything, whether it was for a day or for a week, was just gauged that I am going to find that thing. I want that. I am going to forsake everything else for the sake of that thing. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew 13? I'm just going to share a few, few thoughts on this passage. If you're in home groups, you've been studying this over the last couple of weeks. Matthew 13, Jesus is giving us a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. A reminder, here's a simple way to remember what the kingdom of God is. It's the dome in which God is king. It's the place where God's will and reign are being done. Uh, another way to put it would be heaven on earth. 
It's where every, every longing, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I bet I could nail a good like 10 to 15 of your core, like existential and like core longings as a person. Like world peace. Like things being just and merciful. Love reigning. People flourishing. Creativity and joy abounding. Just like not like clouds and sky and, and some weird nebulous image of heaven, like real rooted wholeness and flourishing. This is what the scriptures describe as the kingdom of God. And Jesus comes to announce the kingdom of God is at hand. He says the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. And, and as we talk a lot about in our Church, we as a, as, a, as a church, we're joining God, right, in seeing heaven come to earth. This is part of our task. This is part of our response to the good news, right, that Jesus is king, that we now know what this good king is fully like and what he has done for us. And Jesus starts telling these stories. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. He tells story after story after story. We wanted to tell this one today because the kingdom of heaven he says and so Matthew uses the word heaven uh, there's a long story behind that but these are interchangeable with God the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field when a man found it he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls when he found one of great value he went away and sold everything he had and bought it Heaven is often described as a party. Love and joy and justice and mercy and peace are flourishing. Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's, like, it's like you're forsaking everything else just to get that. Paul says in Philippians, he says, I consider everything else like garbage. He uses this kind of racy, borderline swear word in the Greek, skubalon, to say, I I consider everything else like nothing compared to knowing Christ. John says that knowing Christ, that's eternal life, to truly know God. This is like this really, really sort of simple in a way, and yet almost um, sort of really epic invitation, which is, the kingdom of God, like to, to, to walk in the will of God is everything. It's everything. It's how could we be focused on anything else other than orienting ourselves to, to the kingdom of God, to the rule and reign of Jesus, to seek first the kingdom of God. There's a long sermon I can sort of give around this, and I, my thought and my hope was this morning is just in being able to just remind us all as I need to be reminded, as I read this text and had the joy of journeying through this with a home group, is just to ask the question, like, what does it mean for me to want God's rule and reign more than anything else? Where are the places that I don't? 
something that has marked our church from the very, um, you know, I don't know if from the very beginning, but something that I've seen rise up over the last couple of years has been a growing hunger and pursuit of God, a deep desire to be more open, to forsake the stuff that doesn't matter. I love many of you talk to me about how like, I'm just so tired of everything this world throws at me. There's just so little I can hold on to, right? The political season that gets like highlighted. There's just so little we can really grab onto. That's like really true. Feels like we're just constantly mitigating disaster. If I could forsake everything else. Some of you have had a really profound awareness that you're going to die, which is really hard for millennials. Those of you who are millennials. It's really hard for you, especially it's hard for anybody in their 20s at any time. You're going to die relatively soon compared to like the span of life. And that's actually spurred you on with great joy if I don't want to waste any time other than being where, where I'm called to be. So where? Like where? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, like the simple question is where am I not trusting that God's rule and reign is is the best possible way to live? Where am I not trusting what God has done for me, for us? Where do I not trust that God and his sovereignty is making all things new and inviting me to join him in that? Where do I not trust that in my job and where do I not trust that in my family? Where does it feel like the odds are stacked against that? Where am I not hungering for the things of heaven? Jesus is saying it's worth giving up everything to accept and do the will of God. There's a threat, there's a few threats, I think, to doing this well as a church. And as we head into year five, I I wanna be especially aware of these four things. One, I think a threat to the radical pursuit of God's presence and power is fear. Fear that maybe God's not there. Fear that I have too much sin in my own life. This abiding like fear that, I I don't know. Maybe for some of us, it's some like ashamed of the gospel. Maybe for some of us, it's just a a fear that we've got it all wrong. There's, There's this, there's a pressing fear around us just culturally right now. I almost feel like we're living in a time of great fear. Like it's overwhelming. You've got leaders propagating fear around every turn. We've got whole like social and media networks like that just that's their like main narrative. I think fear can get in the way. Two, I think laziness. Anybody self-described as incredibly lazy in the room? Yeah, I think laziness can actually get in the way of our seeking first the kingdom. I think a selfishness, right? What does the story tell us? It's like, I'm gonna forsake all else for the sake of the kingdom. Everything else is gone. Like I'm putting myself aside because there's something more beautiful. I often tell folks that aren't followers of Jesus, if you're here, like what about faith? We get talking about faith. It's like, I simply, I simply believe that there's a, not only is there a better way to live, but that, that thing at the center of everything is actually a person and it's actually loving, forgiving, powerful, empowering love. And that more I align myself with that, 
more I align myself with Jesus. Actually, the more I'm where I'm supposed to be for the joy we read in the story is for the joy, for so, forsake everything else. There's a selfishness where we put our needs in front of the things that God's calling us to. And we don't trust God with our daily bread. And lastly is neglect. I think we neglect gathering together. I think we neglect the power of being together and journeying with one another. I think we neglect opening ourselves up. I think we neglect spending time with God. This week, uh, for all the beauty and joy in it, was heartbreaking for me. Somebody uh, who's been a part of this community for a long time, um, who I love dearly, um, and please don't spend time trying to figure out who it is, um, but sort of just stopped, stopped kind of coming and began to isolate themselves. We had somebody else in our community who sort of isolated themselves from the church community of a place they had moved to. And both of these stories at the moment are in a place of absolute, like, tragicness. I'm the last person many of you know that know, like, hey, come to church. It'll solve all your issues. Make sure you're there every Sunday. I've never said that in my life. But so many people want the benefits of community and Christian community without actually being in community. They neglect the gathering of the saints. There are folks in this community who would be divorced right now if it wasn't for the church. God uses this. This has been his sacred practice from the beginning. This has been his sacred work from the beginning of using a group of people and empowering them to walk alongside and encourage one another. It's there where we're reminded to not neglect God and not neglect him. Spur one another on to walk with him in joy and in celebration and in the hard times and calling one another out and not isolating. And no, you can't have a relationship with Jesus on your own. You can't. It's not possible to isolate yourself from the church and walk with Jesus, at least according to the scriptures. The neglect and the selfishness and the fear and the laziness, these things creep in. And for those of you who know me well, you know this is not coming from some place of like helping you feel real guilty. This is, these are the four things that rise up in my heart so often. I want to pull away. I don't want to fully trust that. And like I fear pain. I'm prone to just like, going full throttle and then getting so lazy and I'm so prone to focusing all on my needs. And in through all of that, this is the irony, right, that we remind ourselves often is it's a crappier way to live. It's worse. There is less joy and less life and less beauty. That's all we're proclaiming as Christians. We're proclaiming that when we come and we take the bread and we dip it in the cup, a reminder of Christ's body broken for us, this love and forgiveness that is ours, the fact that Jesus is Lord of all and making all things new, that in that place, in that dome where he is king, walking with him and in his will is literally the best possible way to live. It is the most true thing. And I have to like yell it over myself sometimes when I find myself slipping into things that are destructive and broken and not just managing the things that are like wrong with me, which there are plenty. I mean like flourishing in the joy and creativity that God's given me. I wanna welcome Sarah up for a moment. Have her share just for a second, her, a little bit of her story 
how it relates to coming here as a church, but what, what it meant for her to sort of engage this story of the kingdom of heaven is like somebody who, who found treasure lying in the field and then did everything possible and raced to make sure that they could possess it. In his joy, he went and sold everything he had and bought that field. Andrew uh, called me out of the blue on a Friday afternoon in February and asked me to seriously consider this job. And what I'm aware of now is that, you know, I'm on the phone with Andrew, I'm listening to Andrew's voice, but actually what was happening in that phone call was that God was issuing me an invitation. And I feel like God was whispering in my ear, hey, Sarah, there's treasure buried in this field. But my response on the phone and in that first day was not, what do I need to do? Let me go sell everything and buy that field. My response, I actually felt really sad. I was overwhelmed with sadness. And I actually felt this knot in the pit of my stomach. And that reminds me of another story in scripture, not a parable, but an actual person that Jesus interacted with um, called the rich young ruler. So this is a man who was, you know, young, had money and power. Jesus has this interaction with him. And at the end of their conversation, he extends this man an invitation. It's not uh, something he asks everyone to do, but he asks this man. He says, go sell everything you have give to the poor, and then come follow me. And this is an invitation. We don't know what the man decided because the story ends right there. The last line of the story is, the man went away sad because he had great wealth. If you ended my story at 3.30 on that Friday after I hung up the phone with Andrew, my story would have ended the same way. She went away sad not because she had great wealth, but because she had a great career. So I have been on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for 13 years. I loved my job. And for 13 years, for good or for ill, I have found a certain sense of identity and belonging, a sense of purpose and meaning, and a sense of security and stability. And those are not things I'm willing to trade very quickly. And so I walked away sad from that phone call. I felt sure I was going to come back and say, thanks, but no thanks. And I was going to turn this down. And that, that is why I was sad. <laughs> this is an amazing job. This job actually sounds like it was designed for me. And I'm going to say no. So thankfully, my story doesn't end there. So when Andrew called, I was packing a suitcase. And I was on my way to a weekend away with five friends. Now, Andrew would tell you he was not ready to call me that day. He actually told me on the phone, this is way too early. I'm not ready to have this conversation. But there was something going on for him, a number of factors combined that he felt like he had to call me on that day. And then I went away on retreat with my friends. And one of the things that we had said we would bring on this trip was our big life questions. And Ahead of that Friday, I was like, I don't have any of those, so I'll just help you with yours, right? And then I show up Friday night, and I have a big life question, but I kind of offered it like, yeah, I got this phone call today. It's kind of my dream job, but I don't think I'm going to take it. And my friends asked me really good questions, and actually my friend Alice, who is here, which is awesome, (laughs) 
she said this thing that arrested me. So she said, you know, Sarah, when you talk about this job, your face lights up. When you talk about taking this job, all I hear is fear. There you are, Alice. And I, she said, is it godly fear or is it just fear? And that, that totally arrested me and I knew she's, yeah, it's just fear. So by the end of that weekend, it, I wasn't sure I was going to buy that field. I wasn't all in yet, but I knew if I wanted to hear from God, if I wanted any chance of hearing anything other than my own fear, I needed to take these things that I was tempted to hold on to more dearly than Jesus and surrender them and say, you know, I love my plans. I love my future. I love my job. But Jesus, I love you more, and I will do what you say. And the amazing thing is at the end of just one week after I did that, I knew. I knew that the Lord was calling me. I looked back and I saw what I think is really cool is God began a process with me four years ago. As this church was being planted in Providence, I just kind of realized that. Four years ago, God began to clarify my sense of calling and vision for my life. And that got ramped up in the past year so that when I looked, I just was so sure Jesus is calling me to say yes. So I went back to Andrew a week later and said, I'm in. What do I need to do? I want that field, basically. So the thing I want to leave you with before I pass the mic to Rick is um, as I step into leadership here, I want to lead like that woman I just described. Like that, sometimes I think I look like her and sometimes I don't. So I want you to pray for me and to hold me to being someone who courageously pursues the kingdom no matter the cost and for the joy sells everything they have to buy that field. And church, there's a moment, like when I watched Michelle stand up, we're sending people to Sanctuary North who are like key members of our worship team and our leadership. This is costly. And we're going without fear and we're going for the joy. And God is gonna keep calling us. So I believe God's gonna tell us there's treasure on the east side. There's treasure on the south side. Will you go? Will you send more? Will you buy those fields? It will hurt. It will be costly. But church, I want us to go as people who reject fear, people who don't cling to what we know and what we have, but cling to Jesus. And that, that's my charge back to you this morning. The treasure is hidden in a field. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when the man found it, he hid it again and in his joy sold everything he had to buy that field. Amen. I wanted to share real briefly about surrender. Kind of cue up Andrew for this next piece and something that I resonate with what he's going to say. But I've done a lot of silly things. I've tried a lot for Jesus in the last like 20 years. And I do, and I can confidently say that with all my knucklehead moves and all my errors, I've sincerely continued to face my fears and anxiety and excuses and all the practical things that go against this kingdom of God and this call of God and to step out and to surrender. And so when I did surrender and to come to Providence, the first piece really was to surrender that. I was actually looking to be friends with Andrew, but to surrender that he just doesn't call back. Or text back. 
email back, Facebook back. But he does now. I love you. Sometimes. But coming here, uh, some of you know this, but we were missionaries in Guatemala. We surrendered our life to do that. I had no idea what I was doing. We stepped into this culture, and I learned a language, and I have no idea what it will look like, but I let go of everything I know in the culture that I know and the language that I speak, and God just shows up in that surrender in so many amazing ways. I could write a book on it, but you see Wesley here, my first daughter, as an example, being adopted from there. And then I surrendered to come back from that and to come into New England and to pastor. And I've been in Connecticut for the last 10 years, a decade of my life. I had literally, like, I could show you a picture. It was like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. It was like Mr. Rogers' house. And now looking back and reflecting, I think I was Mr. Rogers. <laughs> and when God gets started, my wife's really laughing because she really thinks that. Calm down. As I surrendered, as God was like putting in our hearts to come and plant a church, and then where? Because for me, it's always been like I'm a missionary. I don't even like saying pastor. I'm like, I'm going to a people group, to people that need this love of Jesus. And I felt that in Providence. And as I lined this so much up with sanctuary, what you were doing, I had to let go of that comfortability. I had to let go of like my four children are comfortable, and we have a good school, and we know our neighbors, and everything's going all right. And in that place, like my hair and my beard were pretty perfectly groomed. But I had to move here. And I had to realize, I can't compete with John Shuchuk. <laughs> Who can do hair and have a beard that groomed? It is not fair. Dear God. But all joking aside, and in closing, this verse was really, I preached on this verse a few months before I moved here in Exodus, where Moses says, look, like you've been with me, but I will not go forward unless you go with me, unless your presence and your power and your miracles are with me. Battery died. No, there it is. And so I was reading that, and that verse has continued to have been in my heart, and I preached on that right before coming. That is what helped kind of launch me here. And then when I get here, within the first weeks, I go to Sarah and Greg, good friends, to their house, and that verse is read as we're praying and seeking God's revival. And then throughout this last eight months, as we get together and pray together, it's on Andrew's heart, and we're reading it weekly. And Andrew's about to introduce and explain that text a little bit more. But I, I offer to you as I'm done, um, as you surrender, if I've surrendered and continued my weakness, and I have deep fear, anxiety, a lot of practical issues of just like, no, what am I doing? As I surrender, God shows up. As I ask for his presence to go with us and into this plant, and as I surrender, I ask you, encourage you to continue to surrender. And in that surrender, in that when you let go, God shows up with his favor, with his goodness, with his miracles, with his love. So I don't know where you're at, but may we continue to surrender. May we continue to expect that the God that we serve does show up. As we close, if the story of the field is one of hunger, letting go of everything that doesn't matter, letting that, to quote a movie you may have heard of, letting go of that which does not truly matter, slide. Letting go of that which is truly unimportant. 
truly not aligned with that which is most true. Then this Exodus passage, the story of Moses interacting with God, saying, God, if you do not go with us into this thing that we're supposed to go forward into, this was the promised land that we do not want to go, there is an interesting relationship between the hunger of the kingdom of God is like somebody willing to give up everything else for the joy to have this thing because there's no place better than to live under the dome in which God is king, to walk in his will day in and day out. There's a hunger and an aches, right? There's an energy in these stories that says, go, forsake all else. This is the most precious and beautiful thing. The story in Exodus is one of waiting. The story of Exodus is going, I'm not going to go. We will not move unless you come, Lord. Because part of walking in God's will part of trusting that you are loved exactly where you are at, trusting that you are forgiven, that Christ has died on the cross for your sins, trusting his rule and reign over your life, that surrender, sometimes it requires us to sit and wait on God. Sometimes, well, all the time, it requires us to ache for his lead God rewards those who diligently seek him. It's the thing that we most passionately pursue that defines our true religion and our true God. So what are you passionately pursuing? And are you willing to allow that thing to shape you? Many of us are passionately pursuing all sorts of things other than God. There's a list of things above God. The providence narrative I found is this, one of these three plans. Plan A, crush it and get a bunch of stuff. Crush it and get a bunch of stuff. Kill it in your job. Knock it out of the park. Plan B, take a bunch of stuff. Grab a bunch of stuff to mask disappointment. It's the crew things to mask the fact that life didn't quite work out. Plan C is become a cynic. I found these are the most dominant, uh, unconstructive, unhealthy narratives in our city. We are invited to seek first something that God has been up to since the beginning of time. A response to the fall and the evil and the brokenness in our own hearts and and the hearts of those around us in the systems that corrupt and break us down, we get to join in in this grand story, in this grand vision. And so we wrote the bridge, uh, actually uh, Jess and Greg, I think it was, who wrote this bridge of this song that we're about to sing. It says, um, Spirit, come. Like, we won't move till you come. We're not going to move till you come. Because the story of Sanctuary North and the story of Sarah and the story of so many of you that what's happening in your own life is actually you're in a place where you've, you've been waiting on God and God has opened a door and you're stepping in through. You're actually in that place of like, spirit, you came and we're moving. For some of us, especially those of you maybe who are new or just been a part of our community for a few weeks, like what in your own life Do you need to surrender for the sake of that which is most good and true and beautiful? And what for you do you need to say, I need to wait on God? 
come spirit, come. I need to know your presence and know your call. And I've been operating in a narrative that you are excluded from. I'm operating in a story that you are excluded from. I think about you once a week between 10 and 11, 45. (laughs) Getting late. If your presence doesn't take the lead here, call it off. Lord, we want to encounter your wonder. We want to sit at your feet. I think of the story of Mary and Martha, God. I don't want to miss your presence. I don't want to be busy doing a bunch of stuff, accruing wealth or climbing the the ladder or even stuff that's like we're doing it in your name, but you actually haven't blessed it. Like so much of this, this teaching, thinking about year five is we just want to know your voice more. We want to understand and experience your presence, Lord, and know your will for us. We want to live the life of heaven here and now. God, we want to trust that you are making all things new and that begins inside our own hearts. Or that you are big enough, your love is strong enough to deal with our fear and deal with our addiction and deal with our brokenness and deal with our loss. And we could go down the list. Or that your love is inspiring and full of joy, spurring us on to new adventures as individuals and as a part of a church. So Lord, may we forsake all else for the sake of you and your way. And may we cry out, come spirit, come. Like we are not going to move forward until you come. We're going to long for your presence, Lord. We're not going to miss you again. May we be a church that the presence of God defines us. Like that's how we're known. Like that we are becoming more awake. That the chains are like, the burdens are falling off our shoulders. Becoming more alive to you.